I, I'm a big fan of Jim. Jim? Like Jim Halpert? Uh, just Jim. Oh, okay. Yeah, Jim. Just regular old Jim. Yeah. Jim. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for November 10th, 2019. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan, what, what are we going to do here? Well, Joe, today we're going to engage in a conversation. And more than that, we're going to engage in a discussion, a good faith discussion, evaluating facts regardless of their source or potential for misuse. We're just going to look at arguments and see if they make sense. Yeah. And we're going to bring our knowledge to the forefront, but we acknowledge that we are only human, we are flawed, and we are not on an ivory tower. So anyway, Evan, uh, what do you want to talk about today? Well, Joe, today I want to talk about this beef that has developed between Martin Scorsese and Marvel. Beef. It's, It's getting a little bit out of hand. It's not. This is very mild. But... Essentially, there is friction developing between the legendary director and fans of modern America's and modern world's most popular franchise. This came about when Martin Scorsese was credited as a producer on The Joker, the the film that came out. Not many people realize that, but he's credited as a producer. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. But it came out in the news that it was really mostly a credit only, that he initially had agreed to serve as producer, but he didn't feel passionately about the project and eventually sort of shirked his responsibilities onto someone else. (laughs) And so around Joker, in early October, Martin Scorsese gave an interview in Empire where he made some controversial statements, and I will read verbatim. Referring to Marvel movies and superhero movies, he says, That's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well-made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional and psychological experiences to another human being. And... This comment sort of festered for a while and then has blown back up on social media within recent days with huge blowback from fans of Marvel films and superhero films and accusations of gatekeeping by Martin Scorsese. So earlier in the week, Martin Scorsese decided to clarify his comments in a New York Times op-ed and... You can all find that if you're interested, but I just want to summarize a few interesting aspects of the piece that he wrote. And Joe, I know you've read the piece as well, so you can chime in if there's uh, mm-hmm. elements that you feel were that, that merit discussion. But the first thing that really sticks with me is that Scorsese's main complaint about the Marvel movies, the superhero movies, is that he says nothing is at risk. And I think that this is really resonant. We've hit such a formula in these movies that there's really never any peril 
that things aren't going to work out. Even after Avengers Endgame, a movie which I enjoyed greatly, and spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, I think if you've if you wanted to see it by now, you've probably already seen it, but if not, <laughs> plug your ears. For um, example, I haven't been enthused to see it, so I haven't seen it, and yeah. I am not upset that the, it, I, I know what happens. <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, this has been plenty of, of time to shut your ears if you don't want the spoiler. But uh, many of the Avengers die at the end of Endgame. Or at the end of uh, Infinity War, rather. At the end. But even that moment, which is very emotional and very well executed within the, the parameters of the film, there's still this sense that the stakes aren't quite that high because we know that the characters have to come back. And we know this sort of intuitively because we understand the formula, but also Marvel tips their own hand by announcing the schedule of their films in advance. So we already knew that there was another Guardians of the Galaxy movie in <laughs> production. So Star-Lord and... Drax and Groot, they all had to come back to be in the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. We knew there was another Black Panther movie, so Black Panther wasn't going to stay dead. There's all of these elements to the business side of film that detract from the emotional experience of watching the film. And but so man, I, I feel like we would be having a different conversation if those people were dead. They kept those announced movies and kept them dead. Oh, that would be well. That'd be that something. would be awesome, and it would blunt the force of Scorsese's criticism because that would be a genuine risk. Something would have been at stake; those deaths would have had more meaning. But in the status quo and in the reality that we live in, they don't, because characters can be killed off and revived to suit commercial tastes. The imperative of the Infinity War saga wasn't to make the most unexpected and emotionally satisfying movie possible. It was to make movies that could continue to produce a story that people will continue to see in theaters. And as we'll get into later, this isn't even to say that they're bad. I love Infinity War and I very much enjoy Endgame and there are some other fun movies along the way. Thor Ragnarok is a good, good film. But I think you cannot in good faith claim that the life and death stakes that the films purport to have can truly be perceived as genuine. Mm -hmm. That That's the problem with a lot of movies when they make the, uh, uh, the, the main plot point is the end of the world or the end of the universe, or the end of everything that has ever existed. It's like, well, it, it, <laughs> if you if you just make it the end, then that's just the end of things. So so there has to be, the, the stakes can't be that high. And for it to plausibly tip in that direction. Yeah. In most stories. Yeah, and it, it is, I think, good to note that this critique is not necessarily even super specific to the Marvel movies. As you mentioned, most films have to wrap up in a certain way, and it's not a crime to adhere to genre expectations, but 
it becomes a problem as we move down uh, Scorsese's piece. And I think that there's there's a unique mm-hmm. factor that makes it a problem when we're talking about these Marvel movies. So the next thing that he mentions that I think is really important is that with all of these superhero movies and franchises, he says that they are, quote, sequels in name, but remakes in spirit. And that mm-hmm. really stuck with me, that we say that it's Avengers 2, Avengers 3, Avengers 4, Avengers Endgame, whatever, but it's really the same archetypal movie remade over and over again. And when there's not the stakes that we've discussed earlier, it it doesn't feel necessarily every time like an organic continuation of story, but rather a recycling of popular and familiar elements. Right. Um, this, This is after what you said, there's a line that says the, these movies were designed as variation on a finite number of themes. And this has been something that's been one of my critiques of most superhero movies is that there's about four or five superhero movie stories. Biggest mm-hmm. one being the origin story. And geez, there are so, you know, with Avengers and a cast that big, there have been so many origin stories and they all follow kind of the same uh, storyline. Or there's the the rising up against the enemy that's you, but the bad. Or yeah. rising up against the greatest threat that the universe has ever seen. Or at least whatever context that this superhero works within. And, you know, there is... I mean, sometimes there can be fun variations on it. A new take here or there. But there's only so many storylines. Um, and, and inherently when these people are super... There's not as much fun to play with the fault of people because they are essentially gods in some contexts. Yeah, I think stories become interesting when we see something new or something that teaches us about our world or about human nature. And if we're seeing the same sort of demigods either battling their demons or fighting the the big baddie, you start to lose access to some of the really interesting parts of what narrative can produce. Mm-hmm. So, and Joe, this has already come up in our conversation, but Scorsese really wants to draw this distinction between worldwide audiovisual entertainment and cinema. And... He notes that when he was working in the 1960s and 70s, cinema struggled to be taken seriously as an art form. And Mm. he had to, he and, and other directors had to advocate fiercely to gain the cultural recognition that comes with something that is considered an art form. And so maybe he's just trying to draw a distinction between artistic cinema and this worldwide audiovisual entertainment, as he calls it, the same type of distinction between a novel of canonical literature and a really fun, entertaining paperback. 
Yeah, it, it just seemed like so the the criticisms that he brings against the Marvel movies, I agree with. But it kind of seems like the 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 conversation is I don't know, a bit rooted in nostalgia. Like, yeah, maybe when he was going to the movie theater as a young budding guy, there were more risks being taken and greater, uh, you know, uh, artistic leverage within the films. But then again, as you mentioned, I mean, things seemed to struggle. You know, there was fight for recognition. And, you know, when thing, you know, when art forms or different uh, arenas become formalized or become accepted in society, then you get the trade-off that, you know, that it goes to what people like. And apparently people like Marvel movies. So I think that there is a strong argument to be made for that sort of market preference type of argument. But Scorsese has a response. And he believes that it's not necessarily that these things are popular and people like them because they're good, but they have taken over such a market share that it's what people come to expect. And I think there's obviously problems with that. First, um, chief among which is how would they gain market share if they weren't preferred in the first place? Mm -hmm. But I think that even if I don't necessarily agree that that's the root cause, I think it might accelerate this process that we're seeing. I mean, when I read that, I, I, it kind of read like, uh, an enthusiast for the art form wishing it was more catered to the enthusiast. Like, Oh, you know, there's only so many screens out there and they're all showing Marvel movies. I wish some of them were showing different stuff. And I mean, some of them are showing different stuff, but you know, there's a lot of people who want to make art and not everybody's going to get their art into theaters. And I think that for Scorsese is a problem. As he notes, when when filmmakers work, they most of the time intend for their movies to be seen on the big screen. And I do believe that it's ultimately a losing battle. I don't think we can we can stem the tide of of technology and the push to seeing more independent films on streaming services and other distribution channels that don't necessarily involve taking it to a big screen. But I, I do think we lose something in that. But it, it seemed like my retort to that was that while maybe fewer movies and, you know, out there projects are being put on the big screen shown in theaters today, you know, there's, I, you know, at least in my mind, it just seems like there's way more movies, more content, more, more art in the audiovisual arena than there ever has been. Because there are, are platforms that aren't movie theaters that are able to show them and they buy them as programming for, you know, whatever channel, you know, medium it is, whether it be Netflix, Hulu, or, you know, small cable channels. Again, though, the content is only half of the battle. The experience is the other half. It, it's Maybe it's closer to the idea that 
there's a fundamental difference between going to an exhibition of paintings and seeing pictures of those paintings on your phone. There's sort of a, a, a an experiential difference in seeing it on the big screen with as, as the director intended with the correct aspect ratio with the surround sound and and with an audience i think that some of my favorite film experiences have been communal experiences and i think that that's it's increasingly rare and i again i, I want to clarify that to the extent that it's going away it's going away because people in general are showing less interest for it but as someone who has had that experience I am personally disappointed that we're seeing it decline. And this, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I mean, for you, it has had a personal effect and I, and I have had def, I've definitely had good theater experiences, but it it seems like there is a disconnect by some people who um, hold the theater viewing experience as sacrosanct, which it seems like you and Scorsese are kind of in that camp. Whereas people like me who are a little bit more indifferent about it, like, yeah, I like seeing a movie theater in in theater, but it, I, you know, the ones that I go and see in theater are only the ones I really want to go see. Like, at least for me, it's not an activity that I just kind of casually go to like, oh, what's showing this week? Oh, I guess I'll go see something. No, I'll go to the theater. So I and I, I and I still love movies as an art form. But it's just not something that is a huge draw for me. Sure. And I'm not arguing that there should be some corrective force that compels you to adopt my view of the theater. We need the government to subsidize movie theaters. Yeah, it was called Movie Pass. It failed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> some 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 investors lot of lost a lot of money so that you could go watch a lot of movies Evan. oh i saw so many movies oh it was wonderful my favorite one of my favorite ponzi schemes of all time yeah that that was the designed for evan ponzi scheme <laughs> they got my 9.95 a month but i saw like 250 dollars worth of movies in a week so no, yeah. that's too high. Two, probably two fifty a month. I mean, you you were the one percent. <laughs> yes, I was. I absolutely was. And it this all kind of hits home for me because I think that Scorsese has is predicting, and and I think it's a fair analysis, a bifurcated future of the cinema experience where the big movies get to go to the theater and the little movies you got to find on streaming. And while there might be an economic sense to it, again, I'm not trying to argue that we need to arbitrarily prop up things that aren't popular. If there's more people like Joe and that those numbers are growing, then there's not a, a broad social utility to trying to revive something that's naturally dying. But if we do live in that bifurcated future and smaller films don't get that theatrical experience i think that is even if there's there's nothing we can do about it we can still take the time to mourn it right those of us who Mm -hmm. who care recently this is why it's so personal to me 
the art theater in Champaign, my my favorite theater that I've ever been to, closed. Mm-hmm. On October 31st, it held its last showing. Even as a nonprofit, it could not sustain itself. Although I did see something where it may come back. But. I would love that. But even so, even if it were to come back, really rocky footing, you know, closing down. Yeah. And I get it. If... If it were more valuable to more people, then it would still be open. But it was valuable to me. And that's something that I think Scorsese is appealing to that I get. And I understand that a lot of people don't get it. But it's it's this, this idea that cinema is aspirational. It can push us to interrogate matters of human existence, human identity, human interaction. And I think if you can find it on that level, cinema as a whole is a really profound experience. And it's something that that shaped me greatly. I, I didn't I wasn't able to travel a lot growing up. I didn't have a lot of grand experiences. But I could put on put in a DVD and learn about another world, another culture, even just another group of people. Mm-hmm. And you only get that type of experience when there is a climate where taking risks is encouraged. And when the economic incentives so vastly diverge from the artistic incentives, something is lost. And mm-hmm. that's what I think Scorsese was trying to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I was kind of brewing in my head a comparison to television where it used to be that, you know, people kind of made the same arguments. It's like, oh, nobody's taking risks and all this kind of stuff. And then we were, you know, in the so-called golden age of television where there's tons of great shows and they all say lots of great things and they take risks and all this stuff. But then I also thought, well, television, I mean, it's kind of akin to the Marvel movies in a way. I mean, they can take risks, but you know, it's over the longer term, you get more, you know, content out of one concept than just one movie. One thing that plagues movies is that it's one shot. You get one go at it. And unless you make it a franchise, you don't get, you know, you don't get another go at it. So I don't know, just something about the the nature of the art form. It always seems like it's in some flux and it's not able to reach its true what, what people envision as its too true artistic uh, peak. Yeah. So I just wanted to say a few more words to, to sort of talk about these accusations of gatekeeping because I, I don't think that that makes a lot of sense. First of all, Scorsese is an expert in the field. I know everybody's got opinions. We've got opinions. You at home certainly have an opinion. Yo, I'm normally not pro gatekeeping, to, but if, he, if, he, if there were to be a gatekeeper of cinema at this stage, I think he could be one. Exactly. When when he, he has shaped the the modern cinema landscape through films like Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, 
hell, even even The Departed. Or you know, Wolf of Wall Street in, in recent years. Yeah, yeah, that was a huge cultural impact. I, I liked it. Yeah. Oh, I liked it. It, it. it was good. Yeah. And so clearly he knows a thing or two about making movies. Art is subjective, but subjectivity does not imply equality of all opinions. So... Scorsese, like you said, Joe, if, if, if there were to be a gatekeeper, he could be it. The second thing is that he's expressing a personal preference. He's not calling for Marvel movies to be abandoned. He's not calling for studios to stop making superhero films. Yeah, he's, he's not, not trying even, to cancel Iron Man. Yeah, He's not even advocating for viewers. He never says, stop seeing these movies. He's just commenting on this trend that he sees. And it also should be noted that he was asked about it. He didn't just spout off on this rant and, you know, try to yeah, that was make the a other website, thing. stop Marvel 2020. Yeah, he, it wasn't like, you know, people were like, why, why, what gives him, you know, why is he talking about this? And he was asked. <laughs> yeah, he, they asked him. Yeah, he didn't get out. You know, he didn't. He he wasn't like one day, guys. I'm holding a press conference. I got to get this out. And walks up on stage and says, "I'm Batman," but also Marvel movies aren't uh, <laughs> aren't the thing. Yeah. Also, for no reason, I hate them. Yeah. And the final thing I want to say in regards to gatekeeping is that gatekeeping is certainly problematic when it marginalizes underrepresented groups. If a, a someone in the ivory tower stopped minorities from participating in film, obviously that's horrible. But there there is no barrier to Marvel or Disney within cinema. They're the largest film company and largest media company that the world has ever seen. They don't, <laughs> there's no gatekeeper that could stop them if they wanted to. So I think mm -hmm. that falling on the sword of a giant corporation is not a good look. They're, they, within the current industry, Marvel and Disney have a lot more power than Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And... And, it, if, and those movies mean a lot to a lot of people. If that's the going along the power gradient, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Sorry. What was your What was your comment? Yeah. There? I mean, I mean, those movies mean a lot to a lot of people, so that's why it ends up being like that. So people gonna people they gonna do. have opinions, and, and some and are worse than others, and this one isn't necessarily horrible. Yeah, and and just to sort of summarize, I want to be clear. If you enjoy Marvel movies and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's great. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I personally believe that several of them are very good films, but Martin Scorsese is hitting on this nature of a divergence between two types of movie experiences, one of which is dying. And mm. the one that's dying is not the Marvel flavor. So continue to enjoy your movies. I will too. But let, let us have a moment to mourn this experience that 
will not continue to exist as we've known it. Or maybe it will. <laughs> well, maybe, but it, it seems unlikely. Art forms have renaissances. So, who knows? We'll see. The art form Tune might, in but next I think time. The, the theater experience element of it, if, if not even the art theater can make it, I just am deeply troubled. We'll see. So, Joe. Yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Well, Evan, this week I want to talk uh, just kind of generally about the idea of televised uh, criminal court cases or criminal trials. And, you know, it's not a super in-depth look at it, but just some general ideas I've had on it. Um, so this came up. I just uh, this week watched Netflix's new tr- true crime docu-series called The Devil Next Door, which focuses on the trials of a one John Demanyuk, uh from Cleveland, Ohio. He is he was a Ukrainian immigrant to the United States, uh, worked in the Ford uh, factory in Cleveland, Ohio, and he was accused of being Ivan the Terrible, a infamous Nazi guard at the death camp in Treblinka, who was especially cruel to the inmates, like way more so than normal, uh, who often wielded a sword, cut off the ears of uh, inmates who were working and just let them to bleed, often pushing people into the gas chambers, an overall horrible person. Also, not to be confused with Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia, when I was looking this up, um, it brought me to a Wikipedia disambiguation page, which is always great when there are multiple entrants into the same thing. So there are actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Ivan the Terribles. Yes, um, this was according a big to Wikipedia. source of confusion for me initially. Yes, um, there there are a lot of Ivan the Terribles. It is a trope. It is a <laughs> it is just something people call Ivans who are bad. But anyway, part of the uh, series was uh, Demanyuk got extradited to Israel, where um, he was put on trial for being Ivan the Terrible. And during the whole trial, this was televised throughout Israel. It was the the biggest event that was happening in Israel at the time, at least as this docuseries makes it out to believe. And it was heated because... I mean, Israel is a nation of Jews. The Holocaust is horrible. And Ivan the Terrible was one of the most horrible Nazis that ever existed in, in, in regards to the treatment of Jews. So they, he was put on trial and a big portion of it was, was survivors going up to positively identify him. And there was some... You know, since it was nationally televised and everybody was watching it, it seemed like, you know, they even if they came there and gave all the descriptions of what they remember Ivan the Terrible as, that there would be no room for them to say, oh, I was mistaken. This man is not Ivan the Terrible. They all came forward and said that he was... 
that man. But it just, you know, there was some evidence that showed that maybe he wasn't Ivan the Terrible. There were some discrepancies about, you know, his features and all this stuff. And, you know, I just couldn't believe that if, you know, with it being televised the way that it was, that there could have ever been that room for one person to go, actually, you know, I don't think this was him. Now, whether it, you know, it's never been positively identified who Ivan the Terrible was and he's never been found or conclusively found. But, you know, in this trial, they certainly tried. And I've been thinking, you know, this is something I've seen in other um, famous cases. Like when I watched um, the show Making a Murderer, I watched that many times and I got deep within it. And part of that trial was that you know, all the pre-trial proceedings were televised and that the kind of general jur- jury pool was tainted beforehand because everybody had come to the conclusion that he was guilty or the famous OJ Simpson trial where er- the entire court case was televised. It was gripping the nation and the trial that was deciding whether Ornthal J. Simpson was the um murderer in this case uh who was the murder e fuck nicole simpson yeah nicole brown simpson yeah and, uh, whether whether and ron goldman don't forget ron goldman yeah yeah whether mr simpson had cold, killed nicole or ron ron goldman it it became a referendum on race in the united states and whether the criminal system could judge a black man in a court. So I just, I'm, I'm often felt wondering whether in court proceedings that whether live broadcasted broadcasting of these cases has real social value. It seems to at least impede um, some aspects of, uh, you know, bringing justice to light, finding the truth. I'm not advocating that there be no public uh, courts. I mean, I still believe that they should be public so people can see what's going on. They can call out injustice. But I'm I'm largely skeptical of making it the most public, completely publicizing every detail of a court proceedings. I mean, maybe letting it all come out at the end, maybe... You know, just not broadcasting. Um, it, it's just something I kind of ponder on. And I was, Evan, do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, you know, as much as I would love to take the contrarian view here, I just, I think that the the preponderance of the evidence suggests that highly publicizing court cases has negative implications as you said, it's important that courtroom proceedings aren't entirely closed, that there is some information that comes out to potentially expose abuses of power or miscarriages of justice. But we have to understand that the way our legal system is set up, juries are composed of people. And people are swayed by opinions and 
things that they interact with in their environment, such as news coverage. I know that ostensibly juries are supposed to be sequestered and and held in this sort of neutral bubble, but that's just increasingly harder and harder to do. And it's hard to do if if uh, in the months leading up before jury selection, uh, the fat, you know, supposed facts of a case are highly publicized, whether those facts end up becoming true or or end up being true or if they're just falsehoods that are, you know, are thought to be facts at the time um, that can really change jurors opinions. Absolutely. Um, or, or make them harder to change when you already have an idea of the facts before the the trial happens. That's going to taint what you see beforehand. You know, I, I took a. Uh, there was this law class, man, this law class has gotten a lot of mileage out in my uh, <laughs> in my personal thoughts. But there's there's one fact that got me and it was either something like. 60 or 70 percent of people decide how they're going to vote after the opening statements in a trial. Wow. And that that's just and I it didn't have stats for what it, you know, based on their preconceived notions, because that's kind of supposed to be a taboo. If you have preconceived notions, you're not supposed to be on a jury. But we all have preconceived notions. Yeah, and in the cases like OJ, it was impossible, almost impossible not to have preconceived notions because it was part of the cultural zeitgeist at the moment. Yeah. Like, it, you you had to almost be living under a rock to not have heard anything or to not have heard anything from the case. So it just, it really makes me, like, there's something about being open. And... But broadcasting it, you know, and making it the most, most open, that makes me wonder. You know, I I sometimes wonder about this in the context of, you know, televising proceedings in Congress. You know, sometimes I wonder if those proceedings would be more productive if the people weren't, you know, the Congress people weren't just playing to the camera yeah for to can, get that sound bite it can to get that video standing yeah yeah i mean we can still know exactly what they said through transcripts or audio that comes out later but through broadcasting it i wonder if we just end up making everybody playing for the camera yeah it seems like that that construct actively enables this sort of performative artifice that likely is not conducive to actual pro-social function. Yeah. And just kind of where kind of the facts lay on this. So in the United States, in all federal courts, um, there is a ban on televising or recording what happens or not audio recording, but uh, at least television or video recording um but that's not that's not constitutional so it could actually be um a law could bring that into it or a a court case could make it you know something that could happen and 
The Supreme Court has also ruled court case Chandler v. Florida. And they, you know, there was a question whether televising a trial violated due process and they ruled that it does not. So states are and, you know, localities are able to decide whether televising a trial or, you know, you know, the amount that they allow recording in it, um, that's a right that they have or a power that they have rights versus powers. But I just I am a believer, you know, even if it's something it, it isn't something that's constitutional. I I have a, a belief that most court cases well, really mo- all court cases. Now I'll go with most. Most court cases shouldn't be broadcast. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be recorded and that footage or um, recording of whatever form can't be used at a later date. But I I am against the kind of live broadcasting of it, especially since court cases are supposed to be consumed as a whole. And if you just broadcast a little bit or people just see a little bit of it, then they can take away um, a different meaning than what the entire trial as a whole goes over. So I, I am, I am more for trials that don't broadcast, but you know, people can come, people can write down what happened. Um, official transcripts can exist, but just not televising. Do you think that the concerns of broadcast would be mitigated with the installation of professional jurors? Oh, professional jurors is something I go back and forth on. That could be a great topic for another day. All right, I'm, I'm comfortable putting a pin in it. It, it. it does warrant its own full discussion. Yeah, that there, there is a lot to unpack in the idea of professional jurors. And I am... <laughs> You know, I, I don't have completely formed opinions on it. So there's part of me that's, you know, like, oh, you know, that'd be a good idea. But then the other side, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of skeptical. So. <sighs> yeah, you know that. I mean, that's about all I really had to say in this. Just, you know, it, it is gripping. I love watching it. I mean, I just named off, a, you know, earlier I named off three docu-series that I love very much. Um, well, with the OJ case one, it's uh, The People versus OJ, uh, an American crime story. But it, it does produce great content, but it makes me want, you know, what, what do we value? Great real-life content or uh, justice? And it seems like there is a bit of a choice there. Yeah, yeah. They're probably in a lot of extreme cases, but just because the cases are extreme doesn't mean that the people who are affected are any less real. Yep. Yep. Justice is metered on an individual basis. And I mean, the widespreadness of, rec- you know, broadcasting court trials in the United States is, you know, kind of hit or miss. But there's all, you know, most other countries, almost all court proceedings are limited to that court they aren't broadcast there are rules based 
based on what can be said about them. You know, I know in England, if there's a court case going on, the media cannot report like what's going on in it, which, you know, also has value to it um, in some ways, which I mean, this could never happen in the United States. But and there's actually been court case, Supreme Court cases about that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it just it's it's something I wonder. I think about I just want justice for all. So, Evan, what's our uh, main topic today? Today, we're going to be talking about BoJack Horseman. So, Evan, BoJack Horseman, good or bad? Good. I, I say good, too. Well, that's the discussion, everybody. So anyway, BoJack. So yeah. So so on a more serious note, it, it uh, season six A has appeared in my Netflix queue, and it has disappeared now because I watched it, and it has also disappeared from Evan's queue because he also watched it. Indeed. Yeah. So yeah, definitely overall, I would say good. It it definitely there was some scare going in. Well, before they announced that this was the final season, there was some preponderance of, well, where's the show going to go? And now that we know that it's wrapping up, we, we, we have a better idea of where this show is going. And it's it's an interesting direction and it feels congruent or it feels in line with what the show is set up and it and so far it feels natural yeah um, and also you know this beyond this um there there are going to be spoilers so if you haven't watched this um turn back now so anyway um do you do you have any standout moments for you evan yeah, so let's see. A couple of standout moments. In I think in that first episode, the first real moment that's kind of a a little gut check is when Bojack has crashed the house of Jameson's dad, the the girl Jameson who he's in rehab with. Yeah, Jameson H. Um, and that that moment comes where we find out that the entire narrative that she's built to justify her self-destructive behavior has been a lie culminating in the revelation that the baby that she calls her sister is really her own daughter i think mm-hmm. was 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 kind of a nice little emotional moment and a little bit of a twist because even though we don't really know Jameson super well we build enough of her and Bojack's investment in her for that moment to have some weight. Mm-hmm. And I like how Bojack coming back, he, he finally submits. Yeah. Um, that, that, that was, that was a kind of powerful moment. 
Yeah, his reluctance to take the selfie symbolizes his reluctance to fully invest in the process. Yeah. You know, he did a full round of rehab without, you know, formally submitting to it and then went off on everybody for saying, (laughs) you know, if you have to go to rehab multiple times, you're a failure. And then he comes back immediately for round two in the same episode. Mm -hmm. Um, It all all goes whatever. And man, I got to appreciate how in this, I mean, it's kind of. Bojack is a weird show where I really like it. I watch it. But once I watch a season, I kind of almost forget everything. (laughs) Or at least the order that it happened and when it happened. It's Um, just a symptom of of streaming, I think. I I don't think it's indicative of the quality of the show. No, you know, it's a really... It's a high-quality show. It's just... I, I just forget things pretty easily with it. But... Um, so what I wanted to say was I like how in this half preseason, whatever it is, everyone kind of has their own developing storyline going on. Mm-hmm. How not every like almost nobody's story. Well, there there's just a couple storylines that are codependent on each other, but everybody's experiencing their own unique life revelations separately all at the same time. And they're all different. Yeah. And that's something, you know, with Diane and her love interest and figuring out her, you know, what her life is, you know, how to just enjoy things or Mr. Peanut butter dealing with, uh, how he cheated on pickles or, um, Princess Caroline having a kid and being at a do-it-all mom with the Fujis with the Fijis and the gala at the gala. Um, and, and Miss, you know, uh, Bojack dealing with Bojack things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's refreshing. Well, I don't know if refreshing is the word, but it's just nice to see that everybody has their own, um, non-static storyline going on. It's a nice lot of dynamic when, story. It's nice when the characters can have those types of independent arcs because it feels more organic. It feels like the creators aren't trying to shoehorn the characters into implausible scenarios together if their storylines naturally diverge. And it gives a certain air of credibility to the observations then that follow. Yeah. They, yeah, it's not all shoot, you know, it's not like they all had to be, it saved money for everybody to be on set one day <laughs> um, yeah. in the same place. Everybody just gets to go and do their own thing. And they're all stories that speak to something in the world um, mm-hmm. and how to deal with that. Like the, the Mr. Peanut Butter storyline is... You know, there's a whole episode of that's both funny and serious where he's having this conversation with Pickles and trying to figure it out. And everybody's trying to hide from them at the same time. Oh, like, yeah. That was my that was one of my favorite gags of the season. Yeah. Just <laughs> and how oblivious they are to everything. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's part of the wink, wink, nod, nod of it all. And him, you know, figuring out, you know, I cheated 
but do I still like her? I guess I like her. I'm going to figure it out. You know, I still don't know if he's just, you know, super agreeable about things and actually wants to stay with her, but, you know, at least says he does. Um, Yeah. And I think it's also kind of interesting how Mr. Peanut Butter's arc almost thematically mirrors Bojack's because I think this season was a lot about redemption. Can we be redeemed? Can we change? Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, do we deserve it? How, How many second chances do we deserve? And what can we do to be held responsible for our behavior? Mr. Peanut Butter and Pickles obviously come up with a, a really humorous solution to hold Mr. Peanut Butter responsible and to atone by letting Pickles mm-hmm. sleep with upwards of 30 random guys trying to recreate that <laughs> that hurt feeling that she Yeah, Yeah, yeah. What, what originally starts off as like a pretty cut and dry like uh, kind of sitcom scenario becomes, oh yeah, I slept with over 30 guys and I don't know if I've gotten revenge mm-hmm. yet. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's it's that same sort of it, it's a very almost slapstick way to talk about the same issues of redemption, atonement, and change that Bojack is going through. Yeah, and and then the illusion at the end of the last or the last episode where it looks like. You know, Bojack is may actually face some consequences for yep, his actions. Yep, they set it up so that it could it could all come toppling down. Yeah, like he, you know, he goes on. You know, he finds out that you know he acts out because he just wants a response from the world because nobody ever, you know, there were never any consequences when he acted out, and now they're setting it up for there to be consequences. Yeah, and I I think for for the most part that was handled really well. I think that uh, it's a good move to bring Gina back and see how she is experiencing and processing her trauma. I think that it, it, it would seem a little hollow if her experience wasn't reincorporated into the narrative. And the whole comical news reporter investigation into Sarah Lynn's death, I think works on a comedic level because they're just such over the top characters. It's that, such a farce. Yeah. You, you got to laugh and go along with whatever. But then the one that, that really I think doesn't sit as well with me is the, the obvious setup that Pete repeat from New Mexico is going to tell Hollyhock about, Bojack and Penny that 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 seems in a season where despite all of the silly scenarios the actual drama felt very grounded that that mm-hmm. is a bit too convoluted to me that was a step too far I, I get okay that I, I didn't I, I, I didn't get the, realize that guy was from New Mexico yeah yeah that's the guy that's the guy who was with them at prom and who bojack left in at the emergency room with the the girl with alcohol poisoning yeah that wasn't just some guy well i was thinking it was like something from the sarah lynn bojack like bender 
that uh, I had forgotten. Um, no, no, that's he's going to tell her about um, about, yeah, Bojack and yeah. Penny and giving them alcohol. Yeah, that's that's a callback to the New Mexico story. And I want to say season yeah. two. Yeah, that that is a bit of a that is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, so that was disappointing, but I guess in the grand scheme of things, eh, it's not so bad. Now, if if Holly Hawk had gone to a party in New Mexico, <laughs> then maybe. But yeah, um, let me see. I really enjoyed Diane's storyline of Mm -hmm. just kind of coming to terms with herself like i felt very happy when she greeted guy and it's it's visually obvious that she had gained weight yeah yeah because she had decided to prioritize trying to help her mental health over the side effects of the medication yeah yeah so that was oh man i hadn't even thought of that implication that she had went and got antidepressants yeah because that's that's what that's what she had said she said oh yeah i tried antidepressants they made me gain weight and so then when she gained weight yeah that that's how i interpreted it you see smart shows even when smart people watch them don't you know there's a lot that get that can you know bojack is a dense show that it is. There's a lot going on visually in every frame. A lot going on visually. Uh, you know, almost all of the dialogue has some meaning or dual meaning that gets called back to very easily, you know, very often in the show. So there's there's <laughs> you, you got to pay attention. Yeah, this season especially was heavy on the callbacks, but I loved it. I thought that. They all came up very naturally and just sort of reminded you of this world that we've built since 2013. Well, I say we like I had a hand in it, that that the creators built since 2013. And it was no, Evan, we built this very city. nice. We built this city on animation trap music. Oh, um, but and, and that that one callback or, you know, where uh Bojack and Mr. Peanut Butter finally have their crossover episode. Oh, it was so beautiful. Yeah. Mr. Peanut Butter couldn't even contain himself. What a th- yeah. th- there probably was the best day of his life. Yeah. A guy whose emotions are al- already turned up to 10 got got bumped up and overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. I I'm uh I'm still trying to figure out like the you know, if it's more than just uh, commentary on or, you know, just a joke that Mr. Peanut Butter is the face of depression. Like, did you read any more into that or is that just a joke? Um, so I think sort of what what I take on it is that it's it's definitely a reference to the sad Keanu meme where. Keanu Reeves there was that photo of him on the park bench and then it became a meme and then he sort of experienced a sort of career revival after that Mm. and so maybe it's it's a commentary on how in modern times we can remove context from images and repurpose them 
to meet other ends because remember the, mm-hmm. the 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 sad dog meme and mr peanut butter becoming the face of depression is in the wake of his public backlash when it's revealed that he cheated on pickles so right. they take they they, they f- absolutely fabricate this narrative just to win him back social capital that's that's kind of how I thought it was going, and I think that 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 might be a bigger focus in the second half of the season. Mm-hmm. And uh, with with Joey, whatever name, yeah, Joey Pogo, Joey Pogo, <laughs> and and who's Joey Pogo supposed to be? Just just a character? Is it a is it a joke on like Justin Bieber? Or... Yeah, I will say Joey Pogo was the most enigmatic part to me. I do not have a good handle on the function of that. Is Joey Pogo a dude or a chick? Non-binary? I don't know. It was just just kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like, yeah. hey, Joey Pogo coming into rehab now. Now with Mister Peanut Butter. May- Maybe, yeah, I, maybe, maybe the last episode will realize that Joey Pogo was the the protagonist the whole time. That would be quite a bold move. <laughs> Season six B, last episode. <laughs> it turns yeah, out the, that the the entire Bojack character- universe is in Joey Pogo's snow globe. Yeah, or or is a. Uh, is a rehashing of in in therapy or something like that. Mm, yeah. Oh man, all that stuff with uh in, in the therapy that that hit it, it spoke to me a lot of it. Um, yeah. Especially because you know sometimes you know I I have had issues with uh, my weight and eating, and sometimes I wonder if I'm addicted to eating. That's something I don't know if I necessarily have the power to, um, dis, you know, diagnose. But mm-hmm. it just, um, it, you know, the 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 themes of figuring out that it does have power over you. You know, my what was it? The line was like something my uh, my addiction causes me to want what the addiction wants or something like that. Like that yeah. spoke to me or how the uh, what I think his name is champ. The the uh, the counselor, how yeah, he relapses it. Yeah. How how fragile recovery can be. Yeah. Like like Bojack's journey, you know, recovery is partly due to watching someone else fail in theirs. Or have a setback in theirs. Mm-hmm. To see someone who was writing sober for so long had built the credibility of someone who would know something like that, even though Bojack questions it a lot. Like with the distinction of between horse therapist and therapy horse. But <laughs> um, <laughs> just to see how fragile it can all be. That's... That, that just spoke to me how yeah. your efforts at something that is really hard in your life, you know, no matter how much good you do or how long you go with it, it can it can fucking break. 
And it's bad if you have the attitude that, well, I broke, you know, might as well go with it. Like champ goes or, uh, you know, even when Sarah Lynn did it, all it took for Sarah Lynn to not be sober anymore was Bojack coming and like, Hey, you want a drink? Be like, sure. So it's, it's just something to wonder about, to think about. Yeah. And it's just as, as if we needed any more reminder of this. It, it's tough out there. And <laughs> there are so many different problems that you can encounter. There's so many different battles you can have to fight. And everyone around you is is going through that to some extent. Mm-hmm. And that's that's also where I think they they pick up nicely with Gina's story where her acting career has taken off, but she is clearly traumatized by what has happened to her. And now I had, for, she, it's just again, part of my, yeah. Part of my forgetting what, what happened to Gina again? Yeah. So near the end of shooting Philbert, Bojack was drinking heavily and taking uh, massive amounts of painkillers, and he began to lose his grip on reality. And during the filming of a stunt in Filbert, he was supposed to perform choking Gina's character, but he Uh, became convinced that she was actually a threat to him and and assaulted her on set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, no. yeah. Yes. And Oof. Gina, if, if you know, she is, if, if anyone comes near her neck, that is triggering to her. And so it gives her the appearance of being difficult to work with when really she just has this unprocessed trauma that leaks out. Yeah. Uh. Seems like so many uh, in life, whenever you find out, you know, there's something you don't like about somebody or makes them difficult in your life. You just find out that it's really some trauma that they haven't worked through. Yeah. Um, And that's that's part of, I think, the overall narrative and and the really the deep probing of Bojack Horseman as as a series mm -hmm. is how do we balance two really opposed realities? The first being that bad behavior is bad behavior. And when we shield people who behave badly, we create a worse society. That I think is shown through Bojack himself and also other um, side stories that we get, like the Hank After Dark episode. How do we how do we balance that understanding that we can't condone bad behavior with the simultaneous understanding that most destructive behavior has a point of origin and that most people who are in a position to hurt others have been hurt themselves. How do we understand a behavior without excusing it and then how do we treat those people within society? Yeah, and exactly. 
They've got about mm-hmm. six episodes to wrap that up. <laughs> yeah. At, at what level do um, abusers get a pass for or credence for abusing when they were abused? You know, kind of like when we talk about um, when we talk about pedophiles, you know, just horrible stuff that they do. Absolutely monstrous. But we have found that most people who who commit sex crimes or pedophilic acts were abused in similar ways when they were children. And it's a tough thing to contend with. And I mean, it orients me to want to try and help abuse, you know, end abuse in the world. I mean, it's never going to happen, but, you know, got to got to try. But uh, yeah, it's you know when when is it your fault and when is it someone else's fault yeah and i definitely agree that there's definitely this this deep probing of cyclical natures of abuse within the show it also extends to more indirect ways for example bojack is an alcoholic for various reasons and he has experienced a lot of childhood trauma. And then after the onset injury while filming Filbert, he becomes addicted to pain pills and that those are contributing factors to the way in which he attacks Gina at the end of shooting Filbert. And I was, I was really concerned at the end of the last season, when the big resolution was that he checks into rehab, because I thought that they were going to try to excuse his behavior entirely as being a function of his addiction, but they actively combat that in the early parts of the season in a way that I think is is pretty nuanced in showing this constant tug of war between the two sides of Bojack's mind, the one that says nobody made me drink. And then the other side that says, well, I have an internalized hatred of horses because of how bad my parents were. Yeah. I thought it, you know, it took me a minute to realize, but when they were doing all those Bojack flashbacks to what his first drink was, was his first drink when he was filming horsing around No, we find out that his first drink was when he was in high school. No, we find out his first drink was when he walked in on on his dad uh, having sex with the secretary. No, his first drink was when his parents were passed out and he was curious. Mm. And and it seemed like at every step along the way, he was actually resistant to it. At least put up a little bit of a fight. At least in the boat, you know, horsing around incident and the high school incident. But it also came to be that he he was shown shown in those examples that he believed he was a better self when he drank. That he was a popular guy in school or he got the uh, the more you know, uh, he got more emotion out of the crowd when he filmed horsing around when he was a little liquored up. Um, those perverse his dad, his dad used it as a marker of masculinity, you know? Yeah. Even though yeah. it was a lie, how he sold it to Bojack was, 
you're you're an adult now. Let's drink as men together. Yes. And that wow, that is a powerful emotional appeal. Yeah. Um that drinking makes the person in at least uh the you know the Bojack chronology that mm-hmm. he he is a better person because of it and then then ends up using you know abusing it when things go wrong so and i really like the reverse chronological structure because it seems to me like a statement that looking for a single cause or a single defining event is inherently inadequate and that the people that we become are influenced by a series of events and a series of factors. I know that especially within narrative fiction, it's really tempting to give a character that one golden origin story that sets up the rest of their character. But I think the way that that episode and that sequence in particular challenges that narrative is actually pretty profound now that I'm thinking about it in these terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, you don't just become that person. You are, you're built. It is, it happens over time. It's not just one event that cause it, you know, back to our superhero conversation, you know, you don't become a superhero, you know, superheroes tend to become superheroes because of one moment, at least in their, mythology but Mm -hmm. most everybody else in the world is who they are through many trials and many events and it just it bojack abused alcohol because of a number of events in his life and the events as in in concert working in tandem with his choices I think you're correct to point out that he does offer some opposition, but ultimately he still has agency as well. It's, It's a tough thing to understand, especially in this political climate where it seems like certain people want to claim that, you know, everyone has perfectly neat autonomy and control over what happens to them. And then Mm -hmm. there's another group which seems to believe that nobody's responsible for any of their actions and that it's all society. And Mm -hmm. Bojack has actually lampooned that later stance on on some occasions. Yeah. But I think the real wisdom comes in understanding that the two are intertwined. There are ways that we have agency and ways that we don't. And both impact what we become. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was very interesting how they put Hollyhock in a situation where it almost seemed like she was at the beginning of her own Bojack alcohol story. Um, Yeah. Where she's at a party and is offered alcohol and kind of refuses it at first. But then there's. You know, someone that she thinks is kind of cool and offers them her alcohol. Not to quite the same effect that Bo, you know, she didn't like suffer some perverse incentives because of it. 
I mean, hell, if anything, you know, learning that story from, uh, uh, why would you say it? Pete repeat. Um, yep. That <laughs> maybe she'd be scared off of it, but it, they, there was at least a little bit of symmetry there. Oh that yeah, absolutely. And I, I didn't even think about it in those terms, but but when you state it like that, that I think that's an absolutely spot on observation. And then I also liked when, uh, just kind of generally, I liked when Bojack went to that you know essentially Amish village. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was just kind of nice. The horse equivalent of Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, 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 that was nice. And then also just kind of wrap up my thoughts. I laughed so hard. When Bojack first went on a random flight and he goes to Chicago and it just says Illinois on the screen. I I don't know why. I just laughed very hard. Home state pride. (laughs) Like there aren't too many movies that just put text on the screen that just say Illinois. Yeah. And, And also a lot of midwestern stuff going on even though it's chicago it's still it's still more midwestern than the show's ever been yeah i'll take it i'll take it we we need more midwestern stuff you know despite the uh the media elites and the back and forth of whether midwestern takes are actually valid i just want them because i'm midwestern exactly we're so watch people Watch for Evan and I's eventual art project about Midwestern culture if we can ever figure it out. It's coming. Oh, boy, it's coming soon. And you better believe there's something about pork tenderloins. Oh, there's something about pork tenderloins and about every town's festival that's named after some element in their town. So do you have any closing thoughts on BoJack? All right. Quick, quick. Uh quick points of, of the Bojack things. I really liked that they sort of, in addition to all of this pretty deep philosophical stuff, there are just some really good sight gags and really good like animal jokes again mm-hmm. when they're, they're at that party and that guy is making out with the mosquito. Her kisses <laughs> are like mosquito bites and then he uh-huh. scratches them. I thought that was so funny. Um, Princess Carolyn naming her baby Ruthie. Very emotional yeah. for me. I had uh, kind of missed that. So, and I kept on thinking she was calling her Roofie. I was like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, that would be a different, different turn. Yeah. So, yeah, Roofie was great. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Light Socket. You're going to be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. Uh, um, guy, Diane's new boyfriend was voiced by Lakeith Stanfield. I think that was the best new casting edition of the season. I I liked Guy. He's a good yeah. character. He's a good guy. He, he's uh, you know, like real Midwesterners. He's real grounded. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they and they eat every meal at at a uh, fucking uh Portillo's. <laughs> right it was portillo's we noticed that right away we're like okay this this decor it's just portillo's and i love it's it. just it portillo's great. um 
they they armadillos i think they call it but it was yeah something like yeah yeah and and in guy's uh apartment he has a ham sign that i liked above his oven notice that yeah and and it's like a pig and i was like ah that's that feels true man (laughs) (laughs) the guy in chicago would have the ham sign he definitely would uh, loved seeing Captain Peanut Butter again. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, because I love weird scene where they 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 at aired their laundry, like yeah during that that was fun. I'm surprised Pickles has stayed around this long. Like, well, it's not the same voice actress this season. I don't know. Oh, I isn't? couldn't find out any information. No, yeah, it was uh, the. The actress, I, I'm going to mispronounce it, but I'll just go for Hong Chow from Downsizing. And this season it was someone that I didn't recognize. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But yeah, it just felt like, you know, before all this stuff happened, Pickles was just kind of a throwaway character. Like just kind of uh-huh. small potatoes, but now it's slightly bigger potatoes. And last thought, I don't think it's... Don't think it's realistic that Bojack would get a teaching job. You know, I think you have to have gone to college to teach at a college. <laughs> yeah. I get that he's like a professional actor, but typically you still have to have like a degree in acting or something to teach it. No. But, <laughs> but Evan, it's just a TV show. Um. So, yeah, I guess that's uh, Bojack. We fleshed that out into a segment as its own. Yeah, it was good. I think that there's there's a lot of buildup, and I think that the success of this first half of the season will ultimately be determined on how they resolve the arcs in January. So, so, into the final segment, we're going to talk about, um, let me see, is it? I, I got Democratic primary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah power rankings. Yeah. My, power rankings mine, have back. A, mine have actually changed, so we, Ooh, will both nice. have, we will both have something to talk about. Um, let's, let's go to Evan, Mr. List himself. Okay, how many are we doing? Um... I mean, since mine's going to encompass everybody, I mean, let's do everybody. Okay, so this is reflective. I think the last time we did it, there was still 19, at least last time. I I do this every week, but I think the last time that we did it on the podcast, there were 19. This is now reflected. This this now reflects Tim Ryan's departure as well as Beto O'Rourke. So number 17, Sestak. 16, Wayne Messam. Okay, (laughs) the people I have not heard of. That's fine. (laughs) They're not relevant. That's why they're. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. That's why they're at the bottom. But I just gotta laugh. I mean, (laughs) I might as well put like, uh, cut that. I don't have anything good to say. Put a Rand Paul in there. Um, We're gonna put um, who? Who else are we gonna put on the bottom of the list? Um, Um, Me. Yeah, you're pretty Um, far down. I mean, I love you, but just, you're not old enough. Um, I, there's a lot of things that would stop me from being a good Democratic think, presidential primary I, contender. I think Bojack is at the bottom of the list. Oh, um, yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's about Hunter, it. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden at the bottom of the list. The Rock at the bottom of the list. Ineligible. Remember that. Remember that. Remember that. Like meme where it was like, "Ooh, is the Rock gonna run for president?" Yes, I do remember that. So long. Back ago. when we thought we just needed to run all of our top celebrities. Yeah, I was like, oh, they have a celebrity. We need one. Oh, Oprah, you're going to run for president. Okay, anyway, we're getting sidetracked. What's uh, 15? 15, Steve Bullock. 14, Uh Marianne Williamson. 13, John Delaney. 12, Michael Bennett. 11, Amy Klobuchar. Should I announce them like SNL cast members? (laughs) Uh... (laughs) At least Number in 10. this stage, when you get to like the top seven, they have to be straight because they're serious. Okay. Number 10, Tom Steyer. Number nine, Cory Booker. Number eight, Joe Biden. All right. Now, now back to serious. Number seven, Tulsi Gabbard. Six, Julian Castro. Five, Pete Buttigieg. Four, Kamala Harris. Three, Andrew Yang. Two, Elizabeth Warren. And number one, Bernie Sanders. Interessante. All right, what do you got? Okay. So, again, I'm going to start from the bottom up, too. So, I think at the bottom, I think I have Gabbard. Not not a ton of thought doing it, but whenever I hear her with most anything, I'm like, ah, really? Um, if he was still in the race, I think maybe Beto would have taken that spot. But Aww, yeah, who know? Beto. Yeah. Um, it's not even like objective. It's just kind of like, who am I not liking right now? Like really not liking. Yeah, yours um, is more more intuitive, more felt. I get yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then after that is Biden. And then then a whole bunch of others, whoever I don't name in the, the top four. Um, oh, it's a top four now. Yeah. So, oh, you're going to love me for this. So number four is Yang. Yeah. Number three is, so 3A <laughs> is Castro. Well, no, I should have started with 3B. 3B is Pete Buttigieg slash Bernie Sanders. 3A is Julian Castro. Two is intentionally left blank. And one is Warren. Okay. So again, the big <laughs> chasm between number one and number two for you. Or yes. number one and number three, I guess. Yes. Yeah. That that was <laughs> to try and create a little space. So I know we've discussed earlier about our, our thoughts on sort of the top candidates. But why why is the gulf so big for you? Because my one and two sort of dance back and forth depending on the week and the polling fluctuation and whatnot. So what 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 to your mind creates such a big difference? Uh, it just seems like Warren is what I want in a candidate. Someone who's smart, someone who can speak with passion. And but also has the plan and the backing to make it all happen. And, you know, some of the the other candidates, they have some of that, but not all of it in my eyes, at least. 
Did so. I ever tell you my story of Evan's adventures in Facebook political discourse? Mm, I mean, this could be a new segment. But <laughs> no, because go. I don't I don't make a habit of it. This is uh-huh. just one specific story where I wanted to troll the John Delaney for president Facebook page. And <laughs> he basically said, we need a bold leader who's not afraid to to take strong steps to accomplish our goals. And then I just commented, wow, sounds like you support Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And <laughs> I got one comment and it wasn't from a John Delaney supporter being like, yeah, hey, no, they suck. Or John Delaney. Yeah, he's great. It was one mm. guy who all he said was Elizabeth Warren is not progressive. She was a Republican until 1992. <laughs> i'm glad you laughed because that's that's just at face value like hilarious right yeah a, a in his own comment he notes that her conservatism ended in 1992 before i was born yeah and then the second part she has had is, my lifetime of having these views yeah she's had the views longer than i have and then the second aspect that is sort of ridiculous is that who cares what her past is? You can evaluate her policies as progressive or conservative, and you can evaluate them at the policy level. So, but Evan, how don't you realize she's a sleeper agent? You know, if if they really planted something that deep, let them have it. I'm impressed from a maneuvering standpoint. Very impressed. You know what? I I accept the the Elizabeth Warren deregulation actual fascist state that um you know to come. So, at least she'll do it competently. Yeah. <laughs> Besides the the faux fascist we have now. Um <laughs> So there's another element that I, I really want to I'm interested to hear your thoughts on is that you've moved a couple of people up. You've you, you uh, before it seemed to be just um, basically anyone but Biden and then Warren Sanders and Buttigieg were the top layer. But now mm. you've got Yang up there and you've got Castro way up there. Can you speak to yeah. what uh, what precipitated those changes? Um, well, I can tell you it's my emotions. Um, but I don't know. There, there's just something about Julian Castro where he has, um, and I, I, I guess I should preface this. I guess this is since the field is winnowing, I actually am able to pinpoint more people and actually have thoughts on them because before and through most of this primary, there have just been so many people. And I I didn't have enough attention span to pay attention to everybody and have actual opinions on them. So the the others category for me is just I don't really have an opinion. Um, gotcha. Or, or they're inconsequential enough that I haven't formed an opinion on them. So Castro is someone who who seems very smart, very capable he has been um, in the federal government before, and he was a mayor of a large city, much larger than Pete Buttigieg's. Um, <laughs> and 
He espouses a lot of values that I feel. And, you know, speaking to our housing conversation last week, he is a YIMBY. He is very much in favor of creating more more affordable housing for others than just kind of this vague notion of, yeah, they need to be affordable, but I don't quite know how I'm going to do it. But, um, yeah, he, he has impressed me and I'm I'm saddened to see that he won't make the next debate because even the last debate, I was like, oh, he could stick around for another one. So I was really hoping that he would get a little bit of traction. I like him. Um, Buttigieg moved down because, uh, you know, especially since the last time we talked more of that kind of meanness you had talked about. Yeah, has shown he's had more instances where he just wants to call out, you know, people in his own party for being too pie in the sky where um, he he's trying to position himself as like the responsible one um, that he's not giving into the temptations to be maximalist. He's going to be the the uh, reasonable one. I still really like the guy and he has a cool message, but every once in a while it just comes out that it, it just doesn't feel like he's a team player. And, you know, that's part of the Democratic Party is that, you know, hey, we're going to have a primary, but we're going to all, you know, we're all on the same team, right? <laughs> like we have different ideas, but, you know, we, we like to think that all of our ideas come from a good place and that we're all trying to better society in the best way that we know how. But mm-hmm. he tries, you know, at, at times takes snipes at that. So and and it almost seems like he's he's trying to market test responses because early in the primary he was one of the guys saying you know let's not take pot shots at each other our our mission is to defeat Donald Trump and we can't try to weaken ourselves to do that and then nobody in the Democratic Party was on the offensive and so either his strategist told him hey try to claim the aggressive lane or you know he poll tested that people wanted someone to come out as more aggressive and then he completely swung 180 degrees and like you said is now in the media criticizing people not based on the substance of their plans but on the idea that they're going too far which is disingenuous I mean, I think what really happened was his numbers stopped growing and he needed a new strategy. That also makes sense. Man, so to not to shirk away from this conversation, but, you know, we got a lot to cover and not a ton of time to cover it. Um, it's funny, Beto dropping out. Um, I'm I'm kind of glad he dropped out because he... He was getting into this territory where he was espousing positions that seemed like the right's caricature of what they believe the left believes and not what the left believes. He became the face of many conservative memes that I've seen. Absolutely. Yeah. He 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 started saying what they thought we were actually implying, you know, if they were if the. uh if the conservatives were to use the same language that Democrats use about them, they would say the dog whistles became real whistles. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and um, that is just simply not the case. That's not what, you know, even it, like I said the last time, it's not even like to the left of the Democratic Party. It's just in a space that the Democratic Party isn't. It's not on the continuum, really. 
Um, and I think so. it might have been was it Ezra who said on Twitter that he uh, he said something to the effect that I hope this puts to bed the idea that that Beto's ideas are secretly what the Democrats have wanted all along. You know, that sounds like an Ezra take. Maybe a Maddie, Maddie, Maddie Y. Who knows? Well, um, I don't follow Maddie Y, so it's less likely I would follow come Maddie that. Y. Um, but, you know, so I'm kind of glad. Um, but it was funny. Um, so I'm awake in the morning and I listen to the local hip hop and R&B station and they have The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne to God and other people. And they had Beto O'Rourke on like three days before he was on. And they even asked him, like, do you believe that it's better that you're running for president than to be running for Senate in Texas? And he went full in like, yes, this is the best thing. And if I'm the president, we're also going to carry Texas and, you know, going to get get it both ways. And then three days later, he drops out. So. Yeah, you got to at funny. least put up the front that you believe until the bitter end. You know, you got to wonder yeah. about about some of these people who are polling really low, you know, what their real internal confidence is. Those people who get like one respondent on a poll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me see what else. Um, talk that Bloomberg will be entering the race. Um, this happened today. Gosh. Darn it. So we'll have two vanity runs from billionaires. Um, if we took all that money and put it towards state races, um, we would shore up the <laughs> the entire country. But um, they want to run for president. So have at it. Yeah. Bloomberg um, sucks. Let me see. Do we have any? Uh... Oh, yeah. My fourth Yang. Um, Yang just seems cool. Um, yeah. Better than he has more enthusiasm, more drive, and better, uh, better to me credibility than the people who are in the others category. So, um, yeah, that's yeah, that's you know my I list. like Yang. He's not uh, wouldn't have my vote today, but I, I like the way that he is affecting the field. Yeah. Let me see. Anything else big in politics recently? I mean, there's always big things in politics. It's never ending and it's exhausting. Um, There was the elections. Democratic governor in Kentucky. Yes. Yeah. Bully Democratic legislature and governorship in Virginia, which was interesting because that's uh, the governor was Ralph Northam, who was attempted to be canceled. But yeah, had some very serious, uh, uh, you know, issues earlier on. You know, I don't know if it was this year or last year, but came yeah, back. he was one of the the politicians who was revealed to have worn blackface. Yeah, correct. That's that was his yep. thing. Yeah. Yep. So, I guess the people of Virginia still want him. Um, doesn't make the the issue of wearing blackface even were any more or less were bad, but yeah, that's where they're at. Um, this is, this is the state of the nation. Everyone welcome aboard. I mean, Trudeau got, um, he got reelected, but then also I think, 
I don't know this for sure, but I, I wonder if the the uh, discussion of blackface is not the same or as nuanced in Canada as it is in the United States. But because mm-hmm. um, that's a weird thing, you know, yeah, yeah. Sometimes um, people uh, across the world do um, things in regard to race that in the United States we have decided are bad, but then they're in a different country and a completely different culture and those things don't stand or really mean anything like mm-hmm. like there are uh, been before internet personalities who will say like you know the n-word or something um when talking which you know isn't really acceptable but then there's also you know that that word doesn't have a history in their country so it's just a it's it's a interesting place place to explore and not super great not super great for the people it affects but to think about you know what people in different cultures have obligations to um issues that didn't even exist in their own country or at least not to the same magnitude or effect so Mm -hmm. so anyway everybody i think that's our episode of adequately informed for this week um that's what we got I think we. I think we. Uh, this is a. This is a nice. You know, different. You know, different subject matter than normal. We didn't talk about taxes. Yeah, a bit of a palate cleanser. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, this could just be what it is. Who knows? Every week is a new. Is a new uh, world. It's a new life. Yeah. New opportunities. New subjects. So, Every week. Um, before we go, we'd like to thank Anthony Hitch for the music. And I'd like to thank mom doing mom things. Keep doing it. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm Joe Hicks. And I'm Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>